All right, now let's, um, let's read this portion of God's word. Job chapter 2, we'll begin reading at verse 1, and we'll finish in verse 10. You follow in your copies. Here we go. Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. And the Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? He still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without reason. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, skin for skin, all that a man has he will give for his life. But stretch out your hand and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he is in your hand, only spare his life. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And he took a piece of broken pottery with which to scrape himself while he sat in the ashes. And his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God it endures forever. Gang, about the, um, about the closest human equivalent to Job in the New Testament is, of course, the Apostle Paul. Of all the, um, the, the letters that he uh, writes that are included in the New Testament, the one which by far is the most autobiographical is the letter of 2 Corinthians um, in 2 Corinthians, Paul lifts that veil into his private life and allows us to see not only, not only his um, human failings and frailties, but he also allows us to see um, these periods of, um, oh gosh, uh, difficulty, persecution, affliction, suffering, pain, whatever you want to call it. Um, there's a list in, in, um, second Corinthians 11. And if you haven't read it, you probably should avoid it <laughs> because it is brutal, brutal, uh, about a list of things that he's experienced. I, I'm just going to read you just a bit of it. Uh, not all of it because it just, he says, um, five times I received at the hand of the Jews, the 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods, once I was stoned, three times I was shipwrecked, a night and a day and I was adrift at sea, on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, dangers from the Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger in the sea, danger from false brethren in toil and hardship, and on and on and it goes. What you see there, I mean, he gives us details, uh, some of the details of his own of his own pain and suffering. I mean, he mentions things that are that are just, I mean, some of it is persecution from, from enemies, some of it is satanic attack, some of it is, is um, loneliness, imprisonment, shipwrecks, hunger, beatings, 
Um, and then, then he goes on, <laughs> interestingly, in the next chapter and introduces us to something that's become an absolute byword in the human language and the human English language. And he introduces us in chapter um, 12 to this constant companion of pain of his called, he calls, a thorn in the flesh. And, and we really don't know what that was. Uh, people have guessed as to what his thorn in the flesh was, but we're, well, we're never really specifically told. So in chapter 11, you get this list of uh, unbelievable things. Five times he received the 40 lashes less than one, that is 39 lashes. Five times, three times beaten. Maybe, maybe you've seen that before, but something you may not know about the book of 2 Corinthians is that it opens in chapter 1 with a discussion of, of the subject of comfort. Not, not in the sense of being comfortable, I hope you're comfortable, but in the sense of giving comfort or comforting or being comforting. Uh, he opens the book on a, with a discussion of Comfort. He uses the a Greek word parakaleo, which is uh, the the Greek word from which we get our English word paraclete, which is used to name the Holy Spirit later on. But he uses that word parakaleo. Uses it ten times in five verses. And and in his little argument in um, in that section of first or Second Corinthians one, it's um, about verses three to eleven, something like that. It's um, But in that little section there, it seems that the reasoning on the part of the Apostle Paul is something like this. I'm going to discuss this matter with them. And then in the broadest strokes I can, I'm going to try to give them some idea of the reasons behind it. We're not going to go into the specifics of anybody's situation. But I'm going to try to give them some broad strokes of of explanation as to why... The thing that's going on in their lives is going on. It seems, it appears that the Apostle Paul, in his effort to comfort, wanted to give some kind of reasonable explanations in the broadest strokes possible. That's what I want to do this morning. I want to do the same thing that the Apostle Paul did, or, I mean, Certainly won't do it as well. But I, I want to give you some broad strokes. Not, not the specifics of your situation, but just some broad strokes, and we'll get to it in a minute. But before we get to that, it's, it's my duty <laughs> to at least show you some things that are in the text that I read and not simply ignore it as we hasten on to that. But so just a, just a few things that I want to draw out of the text itself that I just read you before we get to um, what I'm calling the redemptive quality of pain. We'll get to that in a minute. But first of all, I, I want you to notice that it seems in the story about Job that his, that, his, that his pain comes in waves. Wave one is in chapter one where, where he loses ten adult children and everything that he owned. Wave two, I just read you out of chapter two, is when he loses his health. Wave three 
is in verse 9, where his wife turns on him. You know, guys, um, wave after wave, um, any one of those would have been enough to, to overwhelm somebody like me. But three of them, back to back. You know, um, I want you to notice in the text, um, in, in, in terms of wave two, the second wave, um, you did understand what, what the narrator was telling you there, I hope, uh, in verse eight. You notice that Job is banished. Um, where does one find heaps of ashes and broken pottery, which is mentioned in verse 8? You find that stuff at a garbage dump. Job was run out of, ta- run out of town on a rail. He, he's not lying at home in his own bed um, between crisp white sheets being ministered to by private nurses. He was, um, he was where you find all other pariahs of society. He was quarantined in the city dump. And then, to make matters worse, here comes his wife. <laughs> um, she only appears one time in the book, really only in one verse. Um, verse 9. And, um, but in her own specialized kind of way, she does almost as much damage as the rest of them. She's famous because of a scandal that she uh, produced. She deserts her husband and her God all when the chips were down. Instead of giving to her husband some kind of longed for and needed comfort, she makes matters worse. She just intensifies his pain. You know, guys, um, I I don't know that anybody in this room could agree with me with what I'm about to say, um, but I I bet you some of you could. You know, um, if you were to come up to me one Sunday morning after a Sunday morning service and, and, and say to me, I hate you. I hate everything you preach. I hate everything about you. That would sting. That, that would hurt. It would be very upsetting. I mean, preachers want to be loved too, you know? Um, but if somebody who was a close friend did that, you can imagine how much worse that would be. But then, if one of your children were to do something like that, I hate you, I hate everything about you, I hate everything you preach. By the way, David experienced that. One of his sons, Absalom, turned on him, sent an army of people out to kill him. (laughs) But if one of your children were to do something like that, oh my, it just gets worse. But if Susie were to do something like that, I don't know that I could go on. But going on, ladies and gentlemen, is what this series is about. So um, let's try to 
expand our perspective a bit about this very unpleasant subject and, and add to what we, some of the insights that we talked about last week and, and add to that some more this morning so that we can expand our arsenal of weaponry in this whole battle that we're in against um, this subject of pain and suffering. First thing I want to do is mention three quick facts, ladies and gentlemen, and it, um, they, they come out of the text. I, I felt that it's necessary to at least be, to, to draw some of what I have to say this morning from the text itself. Um, th- three, three facts, three possibilities that I want you to see, and then we'll move on to the redemptive quality of pain, which is really what I, I, I want to say to you this morning. But here's, here's the first fact or possibility. You know, guys, um, um, if you're going to follow Jesus Christ, there may be times in your so doing that you will find yourself absolutely alone. Job experienced it. David experienced it in Psalm 88. Paul experienced it. You know, the pain is bad enough. But it just gets intensified by the loneliness. But better men than I have been asked to face things all alone. And, you know, and I've wondered sometimes about why God hasn't asked me to face this kind of struggle, this severity. And, and I think it's because he knows that, unlike Job, I, I would cave. Um... I'm not saying that this is a certainty. I'm simply saying that as a result of this story, it's a possibility. Secondly, gang, the, the devil exploits our pain. And he uses it as a, as a, as a great opportunity f- for temptation. And in our weakened state, we are, um, we're, we're, we're sitting ducks. Um, there is a story in the Old Testament about one of Israel's kings. Uh, in fact, next to David and Solomon, he's probably the greatest king that Israel ever had. It was Hezekiah. It's in 2 Kings 20. And Hezekiah got sick one time. And um, I mean, apparently he thought he was sick enough that he thought he was going to die. And he turns into a blubbering idiot. I mean, he, he says things and does things that are just embarrassing. Here's the point, ladies and gentlemen. The best of us, can exhibit periods of of great faith. And yet, after the introduction of pain, we can exhibit just the opposite. All because of the pain. I'm not saying that that's applaudable. I'm simply saying it's a possibility. Thirdly, Um, your plunge into depression or your cry from or for relief from your pain does not necessarily mean that you're ungodly. And and that's what you see here in this book. Verse 10 of chapter 2 is about the last sane thing that Job is going to say before he sinks beneath the waves until the last four chapters. And, and um, I'm just suggesting to you that once you're in a similar hellhole with Job, 
you may say some things that you regret too. Again, I'm not saying that you will. I'm just saying that that doesn't necessarily mean that you're ungodly. It just means that that pain is a specialized kind of temptation that, that we sometimes do well with and sometimes we don't. Now, having said that, in terms of the text itself, what I want to do, as I said earlier, is what the Apostle Paul does for the Corinthian church in 2 Corinthians 1, is that I want to give you some kind of explanation, some kind of panoramic view, some kind of uh, generalized explanation as to, as to the purpose behind pain. I, I'm calling it the, um, the redemptive quality of pain. Now, guys, uh, you probably don't want it, that is, pain. But there are times that you need it. Just to illustrate that point, um, did you know that lepers would love to feel pain? Did you know that leprosy kills nerve endings? And because a, a leper cannot experience pain, he hurts himself. Uh, one of the books that I read years ago um, was written by a, a physician by the name of Dr. Paul Brand. And, and most of his uh, professional career was spent uh, working with lepers. He worked with lepers in India. I think it was Lahore, India. And then he came to the States and worked in a leprosarium in Carville, Louisiana. And he wrote a book entitled Pain, The Gift That Nobody Wants. That's where I got my title. He wrote that book and he tells stories in that book. I mean, gobs of stories about lepers and pain. I came home and I was refreshing myself about the book. And I told Susie, there are stories in this book that I can't even tell. Not because they're lewd, but because they're, they're too painful to even listen to. The opening story in the book, if you ever get a hold of it, will reduce you. It has to do with a child. <laughs> Just. But there's one story that I thought I could tell, and it has to do with spraining an ankle. That, that's, that's, <laughs> that's kind of an easy one, uh, spraining an ankle. And, and what uh, Brand is saying is that most healthy people, when they are about to sprain an ankle, normally fall to the ground. When you're healthy, and you're, about, you're in the process of spraining an ankle, you fall to the ground. You, you step on a rock that's a loose rock, or you miss a curb or something, and, and you twist your ankle, or, and, you, and you, you, you normally fall. And then he, he says this about spraining an ankle. He says, as your ankle begins to twist, the lateral ligaments of the ankle endure a terrific strain. Nerve cells detecting the strain... Order the body to take all weight off the damaged leg immediately. The thigh and calf muscles will become momentarily flaccid. But if your other undamaged leg is off the ground taking a step, you will have no support and will fall to the ground. Your body prefers falling to forcing the ankle to take weight in its twisted position. You get up feeling a fool. 
and hope, hoping no one was watching. But in reality, you have just achieved a beautifully coordinated maneuver that saved you from a sprained ankle or worse. And then he goes on to add this story. He said, on one occasion, I recall watching a, a leprosy victim sprain his ankle without falling. He stepped onto a loose rock and he turned his ankle completely over. That means the bottom of his foot was now perpendicular to the ground. And he went right on walking and never even looked down. He never glanced at his foot because he lacked the protection of pain. And then a couple of sentences later, Dr. Brand adds, eventually, the leg had to be amputated. Because he lacked the protection of pain. Guys, lepers long for the demons that would alert him to impending danger. They, they lack that protect, they lack that redemptive quality of pain. And, and here are four ways that I want to give you where pain protects, or four ways that pain is redemptive. Now, now let me give you just a kind of a, a broad, generalized introduction to, this, to these four specifics. But if, if you're a Christian, pain will do for you what fire does for gold. Fire makes gold purer and more beautiful. And that's what pain will do for us in at least four ways. Let me mention four specifics. First of all, guys, over and over again, the Bible warns us against the danger of pride. But it frequently, it it takes the suffering to make the lesson stick, doesn't it? Pain humbles the proud. Pain, it softens the stubborn. It it melts the hard. It, It silently and relentlessly teaches lessons at the base of my soul that nothing else can teach me. It it works alone. It doesn't need any help. And because it stays around a while, I can't ignore it. And so, by its persistence, it brings me to a a point where I am suffering at 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 a level of anguish that I've got to do something. And it's at that, that, that level of anguish that we who suffer face a crisis. That is, we face a choice. Either we can submit and learn and, and develop certain maturity and character, or we can resist and become embittered and, and swamped with self and smothered by self-will. 
ladies and gentlemen, I have tried. And I cannot find in the Bible nor in history a strong-willed individual whom God used greatly that he didn't first hurt deeply. Ladies and gentlemen, I've got a quote for you. And very frankly, if you've ever taken down anything I've ever said, you might want to take this down. Because it didn't come from me. It came from A.W. Tozer. And I can tell you, it has gotten me through many a dark night of the soul. It's about 13 words. But Tozer says this. Rarely does God use a man significantly. Until he hurts him deeply. Rarely does God use a man significantly until he hurts him. Hurts him deeply. So when God gets ready to do something, he takes a man like you or me or a woman and he crushes them. Then they're ready to be used. Guys, do you want to walk? Do you want to live a life of humility? Do you want to learn meekness? Pain will help you. Secondly, do you you want to be wise about life? Do you want there to be a depth to your life? Do you want to be real? Well, in this drama of human suffering, ladies and gentlemen, God refused to give, refuses to give us a charmed life. By, by pruning, God is making us into something substantial. He's making us into something that is real. And those of us who are true crave reality. I want to read you another quote. You might not want to take this one down, but it's a good one. And I don't even know where it came from. Wish I did, but I didn't say this. It says this, pain is the thing that plants the flag of reality in the fortress of the rebel heart. Pain is the thing that plants the flag of reality in the fortress of the rebel heart. I love that. I'll tell you something else I love. It's a a little story that I read years ago in If you do much reading like I do, um, you're going to find this story in numerous books. It's all over. And you can hear it in numerous sermons, too. I I guess everybody else was impressed with it, too. It's a a children's book called The Velveteen Rabbit. It's a a book that has a dialogue in it. It's a little nursery book about a, 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 a dialogue that takes place between a new little toy rabbit and an old skin horse. They're lying in a nursery one night, and uh, the, the rabbit uh, says to the skin horse, he says, what is real? Does it mean having things that buzz inside you and, and a stick-out handle? Real isn't how you were made, said the skin horse. It's a thing that happens to you. When a child loves you for a long, long time, not just to play with, but really loves you, then you become real. Does it hurt? asked the rabbit. Sometimes, said the skin horse, for he was always truthful. When you are real, you don't mind being hurt. 
Does it happen all at once, like being wound up, he asked, or bit by bit? It doesn't happen all at once, said the skin horse. You become. It takes a long time. That's why it doesn't often happen to those people who break easily or have sharp edges or have to be carefully kept. Generally, by the time you are real, most of your hair has been loved off and your eyes drop out and you get loose in the joints and very shabby. But these things don't matter at all because once you are real, you can't be ugly except to people who don't understand. Guys, do you want that? I need to warn you. Sometimes it hurts. And you might not have any hair and your eyes might pop out. Ouch. Guys, people who live the charmed life, they're shallow people. And pain protects us from that. Pain protects us from substituting doing for being. And I, I say, ladies and gentlemen, if there is anything of which the people of Grace Evan are guilty, it is that we substitute doing for being. Our lives and our schedules are so blasted, crowded, that there's very little time to develop character. Guys, I, I just want you to know this. That will never satisfy you. That doing instead of being. You, you cannot play cover-up forever. And pain will help you. Third, do you want to have a profound trust in God? You want to have a deep faith? Okay, let me show you how David says he got his. David, the psalmist, it's in Psalm 119. It's that real long psalm, you know, the one that's four or five pages long. Psalm 119, if you can find that, it'd be good. But um, David, David tells you in this psalm a bit about how he developed that deep faith and trust for God. He first says, I'm just going to read you two verses of it. It's in uh, Psalm 119, verse 67. He says this, verse 67. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. You see what he says? Before I was afflicted, I went astray. He says, there was a time in my life when I was playing fast and loose with the, with the, the, the statutes and the rules and the precepts of God. But that was before affliction hit me. And now, <laughs> I don't play fast and loose with that anymore. One other verse, it's just four verses down, verse 71. David says, it is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. You know, ladies and gentlemen, we as evangelicals, we tend to trifle with God. 
until pain strikes. And for the first time in a long time, we long for holy things. All brought to you, courtesy of pain. And then, ladies and gentlemen, after it's kind of settled down and we've moved on, we, along with David, look back at that time and we say, That was good. It was good for me. I can't tell you how many times people say that to me across a year. Just this week, a couple that has got employment issues and, I mean, big employment issues. They're, um, they're on an edge. She looked at me and said, nothing could have been better for our marriage than this. This was good. Not enjoyable. Not funzy. But good. Do you want to deepen in your faith in this God then pain will help you and then fourth do you want to learn to be compassionate by the way that's the first reason that the apostle Paul gave in 2 Corinthians 1 he said we get comforted in our struggles so that we can comfort somebody else you know guys comfort is a lost art and except for picking out the sympathy card gang god allows suffering so that we might have the capacity to enter into somebody else's pain besides our own you know is that not so <laughs> guys if if, if you've ever broken a leg and had to walk around on crutches for a few weeks, you are in complete sympathy with somebody else who's walking around on crutches, even years after your broken leg. Well, the same thing is true of, of a loss of a child, of depression, of a car accident, of a divorce. Of financial problems. Here's what I'm saying to you, ladies and gentlemen. I'm saying to you that none of those four things are achievable without suffering. That is, I won't know what it means to walk in humility. I won't live substantially and, and be real. I won't develop a deep, abiding faith in God 
And I will never know how to be compassionate. Without pain. Guys, some of the character traits of the soul can only be acquired in a grueling confinement of the soul. You know, guys, I wish that weren't so. I wish it weren't true. But because of the tentacles of sin that have wrapped so tightly around our souls, the only thing that seems to break its grip is pain. Guys, there's a verse in the New Testament, uh, Hebrews chapter 5, verse 8. And I, I want to confess to you, I don't understand it. It's about Christ. And um, I'm not going to quote the whole verse to you. I'm just going to quote this little segment, this little part of it. But in, uh, you can write it down, you can look at it. It says this. It's talking about Jesus, and it says, He learned obedience through suffering. <laughs> Folks, I don't know what to say about that. I have, I have a couple of problems with the verse. First of all, that Jesus learned? I don't get that. Maybe, you know, I can come up with something, but he learned. But then worse than that, he learned obedience through suffering. Here's the part I do understand. That whatever benefit is being described in that learned obedience, whatever the, 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 the narrator, of, the author of that book has in mind, whatever that is, it came to Jesus via suffering. Ladies and gentlemen, for Jesus Christ, the path to saving us went straight straight through a cross. And on that cross, what Job could only taste, the Savior drinks to the dregs. Alienation from God. To the point that he cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And when you begin to see that, when you begin to see that, that all of that that Jesus experienced was for you, then your sorrows will still be sorrows, but they will be a bit less heavy. Because our Savior was a suffering Savior. And out of the anguish of his soul, we were saved.
Our Father, I do pray that you will um, comfort your people, that you will uh, bring to them a sense of, of settledness over whatever it is that they're facing, and that you will remind us all that ultimately Jesus Christ accomplished his great redemptive work because he suffered. Lord, if you brought people here this morning who have not yet met this Savior of ours, would you cause them to see that ours is a God and ours is the only God who provides a salvation that involves suffering. The suffering of the Savior. We ask it, of course, in Jesus' name. Amen.